Go to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1 is where we will be. My name is Mike Skinner. I am the lead pastor here at FCQ. We are glad that you have joined us for worship this morning. Um, Acts 1 is where we'll be. We are starting a new sermon series this morning called Ascension Matters. So we've been walking through the Gospel of Mark. We're about halfway through, and we're going to take a three-week break for a study of the doctrine of the Ascension. And this is something we like to do here at FC Cube. If you've been around here um, for a while, we like to look at theological ideas and explore them um, and, and kind of tease out the nuances and implications and meanings that they might have for our life. In the past, we've done incarnation matters and resurrection matters. Um, and so as we head into this series, it will be for three weeks, I want you to kind of put on your thinking cap, right? There are some sermons and some series that are very applicational uh, and very practical and here are your four or five steps to go out into the world. And then there are some that are more um, um, academic or stretch you, stretch you more intellectually. Um, this might be one of those for you uh, as we think about a, a topic and a doctrine of belief that Christians have that we normally don't think about all too often. Now, I'd like to start our sermon series on the Ascension by talking about parties. Where else to begin than to begin with parties? Um, human nature, part of human nature, as far back as you can look, has this innate desire to celebrate uh, to get together and have holidays and have feasts and to party. And you can tell a lot about a culture or society or a civilization by the types of parties that they have and by what they celebrate and by how they celebrate it. Um, our holidays, our feasts, they determine often what we value in life, what we hold dearest um, to our hearts and to our minds, um, what kind of people we want to become. They communicate to the rest of the world what we value, what we hold with high regard, with esteem. Um, this is true on a national level. So if you look at our national calendar, our national holidays, you can learn a lot about who we are as a nation and what we want to be like and what we encourage as a nation. Uh, we're looking at our holidays and our work schedule um, and our calendar season in general. So you have Veterans Day, where we take off of work to celebrate the um, freedom that we have been um, given through our uh, soldiers overseas, and, and we celebrate that. And, and what we want to do as a nation is we want to cultivate this kind of respect for our army and for our military, right? And, and so as a nation, we have this national holiday to do that. Um, you take that from a national level all the way down to like a high school level, right? And you've got parties. Um, and these kind of parties, it's more like hedonism, right? Carpe diem, live in the moment, right? Um, it tells you, though, about what type of person they are, what kind of things they value, what type of people they're becoming. Um, parties, feasts, holidays communicate a lot about us. Um, and there are many of us in this room, I know, who know how to party. Uh, and some of us who have perhaps partied too hard uh, on occasion or perhaps partied too little, which I don't know which is the worst sin. Uh, to, to go too much or to go too little. So it's, it's no surprise since it's so innate inside of humanity to want to celebrate, to want to break off work into holidays, that from the very beginning God has commanded his people to do this. That he has set up a system, a calendar, um, for his people to stop working and to start participating in festivals and feasts. And what you'll learn if you read through the Old Testament about God and about his attitude toward these parties and these feasts is you'll learn a couple of things. One you'll learn that God is very serious when it comes to this idea. Um, deathly serious. On multiple occasions, God will come to his people, and this is a, a Mike paraphrase, he'll say, you need to stop working, close the laptop, and party, or I will kill you. <laughs> I mean, he makes it life or death on multiple occasions. Stop. If you keep on working, I will end all of this. 
You need to stop. You need to have a feast, have some wine, get a little bit of dancing, okay? Embarrass yourself, laugh too hard, exaggerate some stories, have a good time, all right? Have a holiday, have a feast, or plagues, all right? Destruction everywhere. Um, you'll also learn that God wants his people to do this a lot. Uh, so if you were to tally out the Old Testament calendar uh, with all the different feasts the Jewish people had uh, given to them, by the Lord, um, you would find, especially if you compare it to the modern American workforce calendar, um, that God ideally wants us to have a lot more vacation days than the American workforce wants us to have. And we might all say amen at this idea. Um, um, there's a lot of breaks in the workforce um, for the ancient Israelites. God wants them to consistently stop what they're doing and to celebrate. Um, and Christians have, uh, as well as all other cultures, continue to carry this on. We celebrate, in particular, important events um, that Jesus accomplished on our behalf. We have a Christian calendar. There are things that we celebrate as Christians. Um, we can list off big ones. You have the incarnation, when Jesus um, becomes a human being, God in the flesh, Christmas time. And we celebrate Christmas. And then we celebrate the crucifixion, Good Friday, Holy Week, leading up to the crucifixion. And then we have Easter, and we go all out for Christmas, and we go all out for Easter. And then if you think through the timeline of what Jesus accomplishes during his life, you've got the incarnation, you've got the crucifixion, you've got the resurrection, and we celebrate all three of these. And sometimes we bemoan how our culture has overtaken the celebrations, and maybe Christmas has become consumed by consumerism, right? And maybe Easter has kind of lost its true meaning, and, and those kind of things. And as you continue to walk through Jesus' timeline, you got the, the incarnation, check, we celebrate it, maybe not perfectly, but we do, and the world joins us uh, largely, and then you got the crucifixion, and yes, we, we highlight that, and we make sure to spend time thinking about that, and then you got Easter, and yes, we celebrate that, and then the last thing you have here before Jesus um, goes away for us, from us for, for thousands of years is the ascension, and what you find is party, 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 nothing. There's a big drop. We don't think about the Ascension. We don't celebrate the Ascension. And what I want to suggest to you this morning and um, think we might have an opportunity here is that maybe we should, as Christians, particularly in our culture, in our context, reclaim the ability and the opportunity to have another party, to have another holiday, to start celebrating the Ascension. And we're going to, over the next few weeks, explore all the different meanings and implications of the Ascension. It's an important idea, an important belief. Um, and I want to officially invite you to our unofficial FC3 Ascension Celebration Sunday uh, in two weeks on May 31st. We're going to um, celebrate together, and, and maybe we'll start a new tradition here at FC3. Um, I think there's never an objection to finding a new reason to throw a new party, okay? So we'll have a potluck, come sign up for that. And here's your creative um, challenge. We need you to think of ideas. How do we celebrate the Ascension, right? Christmas and Easter, you have traditions and you have rituals. You have things that make it fun and memorable. You have things that remind you of the significant truths that you're celebrating and remembering. And so over the next couple of weeks as we explore the Ascension, let's think through what Perhaps we might be able to do on our Ascension Sunday to celebrate the Ascension. So what is the Ascension um, that we will be getting into? It is this. It's this Christian belief that after Jesus' resurrection, he goes into heaven. He ascends into heaven where he sits at the Father's right hand, where he is now currently sitting at the Father's right hand. And this is a belief that Christians have. While we might not talk about it a lot, and it might not get much airplay um, from the pulpit or the radio or on TV, um, it's a belief that Christians have historically held to. 
Um, from the very beginning, in the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed, the two most largely known and accepted creeds, um, they both have lines in there about Jesus after the resurrection ascending to the Father's right hand. Um, just about every denomination of Christianity that you can find, if you go find a statement of belief or creed somewhere, will have in there, maybe it's just one of the word or one of the line, but they'll have in there this affirmation that they believe that Jesus has ascended to the Father's right hand. This is why Christians can say, Jesus is no longer here with us. This is why Jesus has never guest preached at FCQ. Because he's ascended. He's gone. He has gone away from us. Um, and it's a weird part of our belief system. Um, it's a weird part of the story of Jesus. And if we're honest this morning, it's a very disappointing part. So think about this. How much easier would it be to be a Christian if Jesus was still here physically with us? How much easier would discipleship be if Jesus was still here? How much easier would it be to give money to the poor if Jesus was still here? How much easier would it be to um, stay away from certain tempting things in your life if, if you were going to encounter Jesus physically in body later on during the week? I think if we were honest, most of us would probably admit being a Christian itself would probably be a little bit easier if Jesus was here still physically with us. Or... Frighteningly, maybe it would be difficult. Maybe we would be like certain people in the Gospels who are put off by Jesus' kind of harshness and his radical demands of discipleship. We're thinking about how much easier evangelism would be if Jesus was still here physically with us. How much easier it would be to share our faith with other people. Instead of trying to describe this ethereal relationship with Jesus, we could say, hey, come meet Jesus right here. I mean, it'd be a much easier connection, right? Here's the cell phone number. Here, text him. He's a great texter. He goes a little wild with emojis, okay? But just get on with it. Um, how much easier would apologetics be if Jesus was here? When we, we've got a couple of apologetics teachers here um, in, in the congregation. When we encounter skeptics and people who have questions about our faith, about whether God exists and whether the claims of Jesus are true, things of that nature. I mean, how much easier would it be if we could give Jesus to scientists and say, study his body. It's 2,000 years old and it hasn't decayed at all. It's gone through death. I mean, the more I thought about it over the past few weeks, how many positive things might result from Jesus still being here, the more disappointed I got that he left. It seems like a horrible, 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 horrible strategy on God's part. It's as if we substituted our best player out of the game as soon as it got good. You've got crucifixion, you've got resurrection, it's all starting to get going, and then Jesus leaves. We substitute, right, when the game gets good. Now, that worked for the Rockets in Game 6, taking Harden out, okay? Um, and we came back. We'll see Game 7 today. We'll all say a little bit of prayers, okay? Um, but logically, you've got to, I think, at least assume that God knows what he's doing with the ascension, right? Even though we can come up with all these reasons why it might seem disappointing to us that Jesus has left us physically, um, that there is some kind of logic to it. There's some reasoning behind it. There's some redemptive purpose to it. Um, scripturally, you'll find as well that the Bible is very clear um, that the ascension was a vital part of Jesus' work of salvation and is vitally good for you and I. It's important for you and I that Jesus has ascended and is ascended right now. Um, throughout the book of Acts, as you, you listen to the sermons of the early apostles, um, what you'll find is most of the sermons climax with the truth of Jesus' ascension, which is interesting to me. 
having preached through Acts a few years ago, this is something I missed. Most of the sermons in Acts don't climax with crucifixion. They don't climax with resurrection. They climax with Jesus seated at the Father's right hand. Like Psalm 110 had prophesied, the Messiah sitting at the right hand, putting his enemies under his feet. The book of Hebrews, which consistently um, tries to urge his congregation to follow Christ, stay faithful to Christ, stay faithful to Christ. Almost every time Hebrews tries to make that um, exhortation to you, he bases it on the ascension of Jesus. Because Jesus is where he is. Because he has ascended, therefore hold fast, therefore stay firm, therefore keep going on in your faith. Jesus himself says, it's better for me if I go than if I stay which is a claim we'll have to grapple with over the next few weeks. Despite how it might seem to us, all the different reasons we could think why it would be good for Jesus to stay physically with us, he says, it's better if I ascend, if I go back to my Father. Mary Magdalene, after his resurrection, is trying to hold on to Jesus, and there's this real kind of confusing moment where Jesus tells her, don't cling to me, I haven't gone to my Father yet. There's a sense in which, uh, in which Jesus um, his work of salvation still is not fully complete. He still has something to accomplish. He says, Mary, you can't hold on to me. I've still got to go somewhere, and then this is going to keep moving on in a more powerful and more beautiful way. And so for the next few weeks, this is what we want to explore, the why and the how and the when and the so what of the ascension. Um, today we're going to look at the what, the bare facts, uh, bare facts. What is the ascension? What happened with the ascension? And then why did Jesus ascend? How does that play into the story of salvation? Um, and then next week we'll look at the what now. So what is Jesus doing now currently as he's ascended at the Father's right hand? He's not sleeping. He's not on vacation. He's doing very important work for us, on our behalf, with us. And then in our third week, um, before we celebrate together, we'll look at the so what. So Acts chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to read verse 1 through 11. Looking at the what of the ascension. This is the clearest kind of narrative picture we get of Jesus' ascension in the New Testament. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them forty days, and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Judea. And in Jerusalem and Samaria to the end of the earth. Verse 9, here it is. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Here we have the ascension. Um, the story itself echoes two Old Testament narratives. You have Daniel 7 here, um, this apocalyptic dream where one like the Son of Man comes before God and God gives him the kingdom, gives him authority over all of creation. 
Jesus calls himself repeatedly the Son of Man in the Gospels. He seems to take on this identity as this character from Daniel 7. Daniel 7 is God's version of the ascension story. It's the view from above. As Jesus comes to the Father and is given all authority over um, the kingdoms of the universe. Um, Then in Exodus 19, you have Moses on the top of a mountain communicating with God acting as a proto-high priest for the people of Israel. Both of these stories are in the background as Jesus ascends. The actual words used here, um, two phrases, it says Jesus lifted up, and then a cloud hides him. A cloud takes him from their sight. Again, language very similar to what happens to Moses in Exodus 19. Um, Now, two things I want to point out about the fact here of the ascension, the what of the ascension. Um, What you've got here is the resurrected Jesus... In his resurrected body being taken to heaven. And the angel here emphasizes this. He says, this Jesus, who you've been walking with for 40 days, who's been teaching you about the kingdom, he has been taken up into heaven. Um, This same Jesus. Um, When we think about Jesus' resurrection body, it's very important for us to remember that Jesus continued, even after his resurrection, to be a human being. The incarnation is an eternal event. Um, When Jesus, when he's born, takes on human flesh, it's not a temporary thing. Sometimes if we're not careful as Christians, we start to think that sometime after the resurrection, around the ascension, Jesus stops being human. Uh, He kind of just goes back into being this kind of spiritual, non-physical godness, right? God form, son of God again. Um, But this is not the case in the scriptures. Um, And this is something I've tried to push on for the last few years here at FC Cubed and as I've taught in the classroom. Um, I think we need to recover this sense of Jesus' continuing incarnation. Um, The same Jesus, the Jesus of Nazareth, he has gone up into the heavens. Now, Jesus' resurrected body was much different than his um, original body. He could do things that he couldn't originally do. Um, He could walk through locked doors. He could appear and disappear um, at his will. Um, But what, what we've got to be clear on is that Jesus, his resurrected body, was still truly, fully human. It was physical. It could be touched. Jesus ate with his disciples. He talked with his disciples. He walked with his disciples. Jesus, after his resurrection, was as human as you and I are human today. In fact, theologically, you might want to say he was more human than we are today. He was more physical. He was more truly what a human being is supposed to be in his glorified, resurrected state, out on the other side of death. Jesus exists in a body that's never going to die again, incapable of decay, incapable of destruction. We'll never get sickness, we'll never get a cold, we'll never get the flu, we'll never get cancer. He exists eternally. The ascension should remind us that Jesus is alive today, which is a fact I think so often Christians can, if we're not careful, miss out on. We sometimes picture Jesus as a, a Martin Luther King Jr. type character as a historical figure from the past. And we miss out on the fact, the remarkable fact, I think if we truly were to dwell on it, that right now, in this very instance, if you believe what the scriptures claim, somewhere in the existing universe is a young man from Jesus of Nazareth who's alive. They tried to kill him 2,000 years ago. They did. He resurrected And to this very day, he remains alive. To this very day, he is still a human being. He still has a body. This is why it's incorrect to say, Jesus lives in your heart, right? I mean, it just kind of misconstrues the point. Um, You're kind of missing out on the real point, which is that Jesus actually lives. 
He doesn't live in your heart. I mean, he's really actually alive right now. He has a heart that's beating and neurons in his brain that are firing. The spirit is the one who dwells in us scripturally. Um, I think we, we have to recover the sense of Jesus' continuing incarnation. Um, the ascension forces this on us. And the ascension also forces on us some very complex theological themes, which is one of the reasons I think we often don't talk about the ascension very much. Because it forces us to think about what really is heaven. And what would it mean for a body to go to heaven? If we were to think through, if we were to, to kind of um, direct a play about the ascension, how would it look? Or to, to direct a movie. Is Jesus, are we to imagine like a space traveler going up and up and up and up and up into the atmosphere? And when the cloud takes him away, it's because he's gone too far and we can't see him anymore. And as he goes through the atmosphere, it starts burning, you know, as the shuttles do as they go through the atmosphere. Where, where is heaven? Is there a longitude? Is there a latitude? Latitude is, is there like a GPS system of the universe where you could go from one place and eventually arrive at heaven? Our language, when we talk about heaven, which very simply is where God dwells, fails us. And it fails us often. And so because of that, we often avoid doctrines that push us to the edge of our language, push us to the edge of our uh, ability to speak about God uh, and his um, creation. So we get into the concepts of metaphysics and cosmology here. How does the world exist? You have heaven and earth. Heaven is where God dwells. Earth is where creation dwells. And what you find in the scriptures is they're not two separate places or two separate spaces. They're actually, think of it like two different planes that might intersect um, that might dwell in the same space, and they might intersect in different and sometimes surprising locations. A good example would be from the, the Chronicles of Narnia series, um, where you open up the wardrobe, and all of a sudden you're in Narnia, right? You haven't been actually taken to a new place. You haven't teleported somewhere else. You're now in a new dimension. You've walked through a fold in space. This is what you see happening throughout the scriptures, too, when an angel comes, right? An angel doesn't fly or travel an angel just simply kind of walks through a dimension. And now it's all of a sudden on earth. It's in our kind of space. When Jesus goes to heaven, he is not this kind of space traveler. Um, he simply goes um, to where God is at his right hand. Um, T.F. Torrance, one of my favorite theologians, says, um, we might be better off talking in terms of place instead of space when it comes to um, heaven and earth. And we might say, um, instead of asking, where is heaven, or where is Jesus, we might ask, what makes heaven open up? What happens when heaven opens up? What happens when heaven interacts with earth? What makes heaven interact with earth? What brings God's dwelling place into an intersection with our dwelling place? And we'll see, as we do throughout the scriptures and in our lives, when God enters our space, he transforms it. His face is characterized by his being and his nature, the triune relationship. So the ascension reminds us that Jesus is still alive. He's just as much a human being as he ever was, as you and I will ever be. And the ascension also points us back to the historical Jesus. So one of the things that the ascension does for us, since you and I do not have access to Jesus right now physically, means our, prior, our, our kind of main access to Jesus um, is through his historical life, through the records we have from the, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, when we want to go learn from Jesus, we, we don't get to go hear from him on a hill. 
we get to go read what he said when he was on a hill. Does that make sense? The ascension um, reminds us that the, the primary meeting place for us with Jesus, when we learn about Jesus, is through his historical life. It's through his um, recorded actions and ministries in the Gospels. Um, his departure from us takes us back to what we have recorded for us. Um, so you have the ascension. This is what happens here in the Gospel uh, of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and in the um, book here of Acts. And then we get to the why of the ascension. How does the ascension play into Jesus' work of salvation? We might ask the question, how is the ascension good news? How is the ascension gospel? We can assume that everything Jesus does as he comes down to rescue us plays a role in bringing us salvation. Um, and the ascension, um, notwithstanding from that, the incarnation, Christmas time, and the crucifixion, and Easter, um, we, we might start with where we normally start in our Christian culture, which is the cross. We are, by and large, as Protestant evangelicals cross people. Um, we focus on the cross. Most of our gospel presentations surround the cross. Look at Jesus. He died for you. He loved you. He died for you. He paid the punishment for your sins. You can be forgiven. That's the main message that we preach. And it's a true message and it's a biblical message. On the cross, Jesus' death pays the punishment, suffers the consequences for our sin. And we are forgiven. And we are freed. But as we talked about here at FCQ before, we can't only focus on the cross. We've got to move on to other things as well, like the resurrection. Um, we can't be vampire Christians, as the saying goes, and only be in it for Jesus' blood. Only be in it for the forgiveness that we find. If we move one step further back, the cross, yes, deals with our sin problem. Um, but Jesus' resurrection deals with what came before our sin problem, which is we were created. We were created and then we sinned. To deal with our sin, Jesus has died. Um, but because of our sin, now we are deathly creatures. We are creatures who will die. And Jesus' resurrection now deals with our death problem. Our death problem, we are now um, in an age where death is defeated, we have the promise of new life forever. You see, there's no point being forgiven and freed of our sin if we're dead. The cross takes care of our sin problem. The resurrection takes care of our death problem. We move further and further back. Can we see a bigger and bigger picture of salvation? I suggest we can do this one more time with the ascension and see one more act. One more um, nuance to Jesus' work of salvation for us when we look at the ascension. What happened before sin, before creation? What was there? There was God. And Christians believe God is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You had a, a God who was perfect community, who dwelled inside of himself. The Father loving the Son, and the Son loving the Father, and the Spirit loving the Son and the Father. And this triune God who existed in this perfect relationship, out of love, created something else. And the intention all along, Christian theology says, is to bring that something else, creation, into his triune life. That it might experience the joy that he has among himself as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And if we think about the ascension, what we find is we see a human being, God having taken on human flesh, doing what? Being brought into the triune life. Going to where the Father is, sitting at the Father's right hand. 
we see a goal much bigger than sin, much bigger than death, the very goal of creation being fulfilled and accomplished with the ascension. A human being now directly involved in the life of the triune God. The ascension completes the work of salvation on our behalf. Jesus, on our behalf, suffers the consequences for our sin. Jesus, on our behalf, defeats death so that we might live forever. And Jesus, on our behalf, goes back to the Father so that we might have a place to join him in the triune life of God. You see, there's no point being forgiven if you're not alive. And there's no point being alive if you're not with the right people in the right place. And the ascension ensures us that we'll be in the right place, in God's place, with the right people, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is why the scripture so often will say, you and I need to focus on the truth that our lives are hidden with Christ in heaven, at the right hand of the Father, Colossians 3.1. That the reality of who we are right now is actually at the Father's right hand, hand bound up in Christ, you and I united with him through the Holy Spirit. The ascension not only reminds us that Jesus is alive, the ascension not only points us back to the historical Jesus to learn who Jesus is, what God is like, the ascension also shows us this vital aspect of salvation where you and I are invited and assured that one day we will be able to join in fully in the life of God. That we'll be able to have this perfect relationship with Him that He had always intended for us to have. You see, it's so easy for us as Christians to focus on one aspect of salvation over another. And we focus on the forgiveness aspect, and so we focus on the cross. We focus on the life aspect, and so we focus on the resurrection. But what I want us to notice is that when we look at the ascension, we have a whole other kind of um, lens to focus on, which is this relational aspect, this triune aspect. Um, Humanity, creation being brought into God's space with Christ because of his work on our behalf. Now, anytime theologians start talking about the ascension, it always comes back to the table, to communion. Because it's at the table we're reminded that Jesus is not with us anymore. Um, but it's at the table that we're also reminded that we're promised for Jesus to be with us, that somehow he's still close to us, that through his spirit, the distance between us collapses. We were drawn close to us. And, and so if you look throughout history of the debates about what exactly happens when Christians participate in communion, you'll find they often center around what one believes about the ascension. Um, if Jesus still is an essentially located body, it might be more difficult to believe that somehow the bread is actually his body, right? You know, he actually has a body somewhere else. Now, I have neither the time nor the energy nor the desire to want to go through these debates with you this morning. But I do want to focus your attention to this truth as we come to the table this morning, as we, we start to think on the ascension, as we um, start to anticipate a celebration in a couple of weeks of the ascension. And we're reminded that Jesus has ascended in one real legitimate sense he has departed from us. And that reminds us he's alive. It reminds us we need to look at the historical Jesus for, for the revelation of God in Christ. It reminds us that salvation has been accomplished on our behalf. And it reminds us that we are invited to be with him. That we're still connected to him through the spirit. That one day he is returning for us to bring us to where he is. In John's gospel, Jesus says, I go to the Father's house to prepare a place for you. Jesus ascends in order that we may ascend with him. One day perfectly united with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit on the new heavens and the new earth. 
So let me invite you on this journey as we explore the ascension. Next week, we'll get into a few of the things Jesus is doing right now at the Father's right hand. Um, and then as we celebrate in two weeks from now, we'll look at some of the more practical applications this has for our life as Christians. We pray with you.